0: Okay, this is part four, of, really four of five, but I'm just, I had already written a bunch of stuff that said one of four, two of four, three of four, four of four, so now we're going all the way up to five of four, okay? <laughs> so it's not four sessions anymore, it's five, huh? Common core, man. Yeah, common core, that's what I get. Okay, so we're going to have five sessions. Glorify God first. I uh, went over what is yak already, and we went over the other creation views. We went over their relevance, and we started digging into the young Earth creation view evidence. Um, started with scripture, and then we went over some astronomy. Show a couple uh, little miniature pictures just to refresh your mind about those. Uh, expect oh, part five out of four next week, God willing, even if the creek does rise. Mm-hmm. I don't know how that expression ever got started. If God is willing the rising of the creek does what? I'll Every tell you.
1: How reference creek Indians. It was the Creek Indians. Oh okay. If the creek don't rise up and cause trouble, we'll see you Lord willing and the Creek Indians don't rise up. <laughs> I'm glad you That's told true. me that. Yeah, that makes more sense now. <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot more sense. It's like what, you got one road across the creek? What uh, what's the problem? Yeah, okay, that that makes a lot more sense. Okay, so next week, part five. Previously on Days of Our Yek, glorify God first. And we looked at, okay, I already mentioned those things. Uh, Might have just started into geology a little bit. Um, The magnetic thing can kind of apply to both astronomy and geology. But how did we glorify God first with Ezekiel 1, 4 to 6? This is the one I said it didn't exactly... Uh, manifest in the video clip that I showed on the northern lights. It just seemed like it matched the beauty and the power of this scripture. And that's where we looked at a, a video clip of the northern lights and how, uh, I think most of them were from satellite images because you could see a big old scope of the earth when we were doing that. And can anybody, Okay. So, all righty. Uh, we talked about the uh, well, we I joked about being a flat earther, but I never was one, and society never was one. And I tried to explain that to you guys. Um, we talked about the what they call the faint sun paradox in astrophysics. It's like, well, if the sun is this bright right now, then that means that 3.5 billion years ago would have been an ice ball. So remember, I'm providing evidence basically for my view on a young earth creation because I take Genesis literally as history. So if you read Genesis 1 through 11, I think that really happened as written. Whoops. So when you see me bringing this stuff up and you know otherwise, or you know some of the evidence to the contrary, and there is some, and I brought some up, and I give links and stuff in case you guys want to go investigate that more thoroughly. But please don't hesitate to bring it up if it uh, if it conflicts, okay? And then you notice that the 7,000-year one, eh, it's pretty close to the same brightness as what we have now. It's not that much. Or 6,000. A lot of creationists think it's 6,000. I, I tend to believe seven-something. Anyway, more from astronomy was what? The comets. The comets have basically two tails, really, an ion tail and a dust and ice trail a tail, but they kind of, a lot of times, I guess, kind of merge together in the middle and it looks like one big tail. Well, that wasn't, it wasn't their structure that I was trying to point out so much last time. It was the fact that there's about 3,000 of them flying around the sun and they have a max lifespan of 10,000 years. I did offer that. There's some uh, people that have that theory that, well, more comets are probably bouncing in from the Oort cloud way out there or the Kuiper belt, but that's never been observed. I think they have seen objects, objects, don't know if they were comets, in the uh, Kuiper belt, the one that's closer, just beyond Pluto. Oort cloud, way out there. That one hasn't been proven, to my knowledge. Okay, and then we looked at, uh, you guys remember what that was all about? That's called the Whirlpool Galaxy, and I brought it up because it's a spiral. And And the Milky Way is a spiral and they if they had been around for 10 billion years the milky way anyway others longer perhaps but uh, that estimated age from seculars on the universe is 13.5 billion years and milky way 10 billion years but if it had been around that long these galaxies would have turned into well they look pretty nice and spirally there how do
2: they determine how old they are i mean they were around them. So, it's a
0: hidden myth, is The question of how do secular scientists determine how old stars are? Or galaxies? Yeah. Well, they have uh, what they call a philosophy of science. Everybody really does. So do we creationists, right? I just told you I based mine on Genesis. That's why a lot of this stuff doesn't surprise me. Some of it even surprises me, though. Um, but the way that they determine it is through their evolutionary assumption and then they try to match the evidence to that does that make sense Yeah. okay
2: I evolution.
0: <laughs> yeah i rejected it some time ago i on scriptural and scientific grounds we can talk if you want to talk to me offline about that one i'm happy to about evolution
1: I'm
0: no that's fine no by all means please that's bring okay. it up and that that's why they're not supposed <laughs> to be so spirally right there because you see the little That's really the solar system, but the stars inside the galaxy whiz around at a high rate and the ones outside go around at a different rate. So it's not like it's all on one big clear disk rotating around. It would turn them into, 40 40 laps of this in 10 billion years would turn the galaxies into those. Okay, just kind of disk shaped without definition and spirals and stuff like that because of that differential in the way they, how fast they orbit, should have turned them into those. There's our Milky Way, there's about how far we are from the center. I was really impressed with that. they got a camera out that far to take that picture. Milky Way 250 mega annum, that stands for or a million years, would equal one lap, one full rotation around. So 10 billion means 40 laps and an awful lot of different Rotation speeds of those stars within the galaxy. So the spiral should be long gone. Okay. All right. That one, you guys remember what that was? That we talked about last week? That is the remains of an exploded star or a supernova. Supernova remnants, they call it. And they claim that they'll last, they'll burn for like a million years. Excuse me, or something like that problem is what there's only about seven thousand years worth seven kilo annum worth of supernova remnants that we can see that's around us but that's what we're measuring is you know the ones that we can see uh it's gone up from 200 to like 270 now but um, that's the thing about the supernovas oh and then i told you about this one didn't really necessarily relate to the age of everything but it's just uh, interesting to me the fact that in astronomy that we haven't actually got confirmation for a fact of a star birth and you guys probably remember oh yeah there's one eight associated press said they found 50 of them at that star nursery but when you read it it's just like well you guys didn't actually see them turn on you didn't see them ignite right some people might say hey it takes a long time for them things to brighten and brighten and brighten. is that where you're going i mean they're not light bulbs they don't they're turn on that fast they don't but, they but don't do we turn agree that at some point they would have become visible again I'm not sure what that would look like Okay, not well, that's my question not yeah like I said I admit that it's theoretically possible a star could be born and form and start it's just why don't we have any proof of it you think you think if we've watched 270 of them uh, looked at the evidence of their death, the supernova and those we can tell those we have actually okay there was nothing there now there's supernova remnants there. Okay. I'm looking for that on a star. If you find one, by all means, just bring it up. I just haven't encountered that. Oh, and neither has ChatGPT. <laughs> because I kept asking it those questions and it wouldn't give me a straight answer and finally I got it narrowed down and I just said, Have we do we know of a star we can see now that we couldn't see before? And it had to admit that no. But it's a complicated process and okay. Just just wanting to know. No, I know, I know. Yeah, it's it's just absolutely amazing the complexity of what he's created, especially when you study DNA. Wow, that's why I was, well, that's why tampering with the genome of a human being is spooky to me, because I know how complicated it is. All right, then we talked about, uh, I think that was the last thing, the magnetic sphere of the earth, and how the sun has a lot of uh, energy and radiation and forces coming at us that we are protected by that magnetic sphere. And the poles have uh, dents in them, in the magnetic fields, or it comes down to or near the Earth. And that's where it gets to interact with the atmospheric particles and stuff and gives us those pretty northern lights and stuff. That's because of the magnetic sphere. Well, so what? How's that? What's that got to do with young universe? Well, the problem is, if, you go if you back up 3.5 billion years, and we have the magnetic field strength we have right now. It would have been so strong it would not have been survivable by anything. It would have been fatal to both big and small. I put a T. Rex there, dead, and a, a little protozoa trying to form or something, and <laughs> they would have been goners. That's too much magnetic force. anybody ever been inside a MRI? Did it start like okay? Maybe it's just me. Maybe I got a lot of iron in me or something. Oh, that kind of. Yeah, the, it's loud like a chainsaw kind of, and you gotta have the the ear protection on and stuff. Did you feel like parts of your flesh like getting kind of pulled? No.
1: Uh,
0: really? <laughs> He's laughing at me. Like, like, What's the matter with you? I don't know. I don't know. Maybe I got more iron or something, but I could feel twitching and stuff going on. Yeah. Yeah, That's what happened. That's my weakness. Out. Yeah. Okay, and then uh, what was the secular's counter to that? Remember, it was the, what they call the dynamo theory that the ferrous substances, liquid in the earth, uh, meaning iron bearing, as they are rotating and circulating around, that they cause a dynamo. But then this fella, Russell Humphreys, Came out with a paper that he presented that said no. Once you go a couple kilometers down, it's going to be too hot. To uh, I think he said a couple dozen kilometers down, it's going to be too hot for them to for the molecules to align like what is needed for magnetism. And even when I talked to him one time on a uh, in, during his question and answer period on a, a video, pre, you know, presentation that he did, he I, what I had said to him really was. It hurts me as a student of science and of the Bible that having built our thinking on godless stuff, where could we be right now if we hadn't done that? If we had built it on God's Word, how far would we be? And he agreed with me, at least on this thing, on the magnetic stuff. He said, yeah, look how much time they've wasted on that. On that dynamo theory, it's like 100 years they've been looking at it. Gotten nowhere. Hasn't helped one peep. Anyway, his name's Russell Humphreys. He's a pretty smart guy. He's the one that calculated the magnetic strength of Uranus and Neptune. And when Voyager 2 flew by in 80s, early 80s, maybe. Anyway, when it flew by those planets, it, uh, he was accurate. He was pretty accurate. On it. Much more than the secular version. So the people that thought the universe was billions of years got it quite a bit wrong. He got it pretty close. Or he might have been dead on, actually. Okay. And once again, here's my cluttering of the slides. Nobody tell anybody, please, that I was at J6, all right? I don't want the FBI coming and knocking on my door. You can't see it. I can't. I found no pictures of me there. Looking around and. All right. Okay, yeah. All right. Glorify God. Let's start this one now. This time with the ocean, the power of the ocean. Psalm 93, 3 through 4 says, The seas have lifted up, Lord. The seas have lifted up their voice. The seas have lifted up their pounding waves. Mightier than the thunder of the great waters, mightier than the breakers of the sea, the Lord on high is mighty. Has anybody had a, a scary experience with the ocean? <laughs> Almost everybody who's been out there. Yeah, probably so, yeah. I mean, other than seasickness. I'm talking like getting pounded by. It happened to me in Florida one time, big old wave. I was a young kid. Well, Oh, you got sucked out into the, the tidal forces? Into the currents?
1: We got sucked like, way out. And Whoa! <laughs> Did you have to get a boat come get you? We wish. We wish. Nobody we would help you. us. Whoa. Yeah. But um, I was trying to get the intention of a stupid diving boat. Yeah. the Well, we don't know if it was false. Yeah. A baby that lived in the condo way far away. Yeah. You saw me going like that. That's a distress signal. Yeah. Couldn't see you, they couldn't find you. We were way up, but by the time they they kept going around looking for something, and then as we finally, hours later, swimming up to the beach, they're going, We heard about a distressed couple out there. Did you guys see anybody? No, (laughs) (laughs) I said, You said, Thanks a lot. Oh,
0: wow, I'm glad you made it back. Wow, yeah, Yeah. yeah, yeah. I think about Bethany Hamilton sometimes when it comes to the power of the ocean. She uh, she's the surfer that got her arm bit off by a tiger shark in Hawaii and went back to surfing and became a pro surfer still even with one arm and and somebody asked her that I think, do you ever are you ever scared another shark might come or something? And she said, "Ah, sometimes I see maybe a little shadow or something, but in general, I know I'm in God's big ocean. <laughs> totally comfortable with it." Okay, so this fella right here is nice little science hobbit, and he is Jorge Vasquez, NASA oceanographer. All right, say it correctly. Jorge. How oh, How'd I say it the first time?
1: Witnesses? What did I say? All right. I heard you say Jorge. Thank you. Thank you very much. All
0: right. Well, anyway, this guy is—I didn't even know NASA had oceanographers, first of all, but they do, and he is one. And uh, we're not, we're only going through a part of his interview. I, I liked some of the things that he said in his interview. As if if it's going to bring this page up, if not, then we'll just make mention of him and give him the credit for for giving God the credit. Yeah, I know. It looks like well, I've got connection. Looks like enough bars, okay. Oh, that's why. Got to, uh, I have to approve of the rules of the network here. Come on, go on over there. Okay, so there we go, Mr. Jorge. So, he moved from Cuba to the US as a toddler. Grew up far from the sea, but then in West Virginia, his parents taught at a local college. He cherishes the memories of taking long walks on the beach with his father, a biologist when the family would visit relatives in Miami, Florida. He'd point out jellyfish on the shore or algae or different organism, organisms, says Vasquez. He had this deep appreciation for God's creation. Went back to Florida for college, University of Miami, earned a master's. Uh, oh, then later, earned a master's at the University of Rhode Island, uh, School of Oceanography, got a Ph.D. from uh, USC And then since 1984, he's worked at NASA Jet Propulsion Laboratory. Okay. For the past decade, he's been part of that group for high-resolution sea surface temperatures. An internal group of NASA. You guys ever heard of it? Did you know they had ocean-faring people? Oh, okay. That's pretty cool. Uh, Vasquez says, I study the world's ocean from my computer using data from a series of NASA satellites that orbit the Earth to measure how climatic changes affect local regions like California's coast. Uh, Let's see. They asked him, your dad was a Christian. How did his faith and belief in a creator affect his approach to biology? Did his sense of wonder lead to your own interest in the sciences? Absolutely. My dad was a person of faith. On our long walks on the beach, he'd point out jellyfish on the shore or algae or different organisms. He had this deep appreciation for God's creation. I remember one time growing up, he called the police because he saw people who were intentionally killing possums. He was so upset about it. That's how much love he had for God's creation. He really instilled that in both my brother and me. What's that? I'm sorry. I know that's not an ocean creature, but apparently he had an appreciation for all God's creatures. Okay. Um... How'd you become an oceanographer? Well, for me, it was a matter of going back to my first love and that was studying the beauty of God's creation. I love the outdoors, skiing, the mountains, the ocean. I started out as a pre-med major at the University of Miami, took a lot of biology and chemistry. I was doing okay, but my first lab dissection of a rat made me realize this was not my calling. (laughs) like the people that drop out of medical school, pass out. Um, My advisor encouraged me to switch to physics. I did um, and I was doing okay. But I realized I'm a visual person. I can't see an electron. I can't see a proton. I realized that I can see the waves and the currents and I can feel the wind. So at that point, I decided to go into environmental sciences. I was getting back to what I love, which is the ocean. How much of your daily work is actually done outdoors? Great question. Right now, it's much more on computers than anything else. When I was a student at the University of Rhode Island, we went out putting instruments in the Gulf Stream. and We got caught in a tropical storm and 30-foot seas. The entire scientific party was seasick. Whenever people ask me about my faith, I tell them that one of the times I would have loved to have been with Jesus was when He calmed the sea. That would have convinced me. There you go, Jorge Vasquez. Did I say it like a K again?
1: All right. You know just Please excuse me.
0: All right. There you go. I said that I'd cover this a little bit. Starlight. What about the distance? Star? That's one of the common questions creation folks, young young Earth creation folks, get. Is if the starlight, if we know the stars are billions of light years away, how could the light have reached the Earth so we can see them in a mere six or seven thousand years? Right? That's a good question. It's a pretty good argument, and I don't say that creationists have that down to a you know fully conclusive evidence-based solution for that, but. Here's Russell Humphreys. There's that guy again. And he wrote that book, Starlight and Time. This guy's really smart. He used to be a a physicist for Sandia Labs in New Mexico. But he wrote this, and he uses Einstein's relativity for his theory. Um, He talks about the stretch of space-time and that there's actually still some some tension on it. There's tension on space-time. And that we could be in a gravity well. What does that mean? Well, believe it or not, if we're in a gravity well that he describes, and, and he does explain it pretty easily if you want to watch his video clips and stuff, Russell Humphreys. Um, he talks about it with a trampoline and a big heavy metal ring on it and how it warps space-time and stuff. And, um, if we're in a gravity well, this is just part of his theory. You need the other parts too, to, and I don't fully understand it all. But... Um, if we're in a gravity well, then that means time for us moves what in the presence of gravity? Faster or slower? Slower. Yeah. And so that means that the outskirts of the universe, time could be moving faster for it and slower for us. So that's what's weird. It could have moved 7,000 years for us, but billions of years for out there, you know, the stars. Yeah. So that's interesting if you want to take a look at it and i put a discussion to the It's 26 minutes we're not going to watch it right now but here's another guy i've seen him in person he came to color he came to our group and spoke at our creation fellowship jason Al. he's out of colorado springs actually uh he has there you go that's his ministry is the biblical science institute he's an astronomer and he came out with this theory anisotropic synchrony convention theory well what does that mean um I don't know. <laughs> I tried to read it, I swear. It's pretty, it's pretty deep stuff. He's got, I'm a science guy, too, and he's like, what? He, uh, he uses space-like and time-like events. Some of you may know already, light particles kind of behave uh, like, like, like matter, like a particle and like a wave, right? It's kind of have a dual theory of light. And it sounds like he's talking about the same thing in this. In this theory, there's like space-like events and there's time-like events. And so he proposes that light could have literally been here right when God created the stars. And that's what their purpose was for. He said, let them be for seasons and people can look up there and actually use them right away. Not wait thousands of years and ting, oh, there they are. Yeah, It must be fall. No. So there you go. He's got, he explains it with these cones and stuff. And if the thing is in the cone... It means one thing like space-like event, and if it's outside the cone, it's like a time-like event. But if you want to take a peek, Scott, I can see you slobbering back there. No, I'm kidding. <laughs>
1: did you ask Chad GPT about
0: that? No, I never did ask it about him. It, I, I, wonder what it, yeah, I wonder what it would have to say. Chat GPT. Hey, how's, what do you think of Jason Lyle? Um, Okay, let's take a look. Okay, let's take a look at his... Uh, Brief discussion on it. He's got. I put another link in there for you if you want to see his two-hour interview that uh, he had with a guy talking about this stuff. By all means, go ahead. But well, let's just take a look at this little three-three-four-minute one.
2: Does distant starlight prove the universe is old? One of the most common questions that I get asked when people find out that I'm a Creation astronomer, is what about distant starlight? How did God get the light from those distant galaxies to Earth in thousands of years? That the Bible says for the the age of the universe. Well, there are actually several different ways to get light to travel those enormous regions in a relatively short amount of time. Uh, one one way is what's called an anisotropic sacred convention. That's a little bit like uh, time zones on the Earth. You know, I can leave uh, Kentucky at around four o'clock in the airplane and arrive in Colorado at four o'clock without going infinitely fast or anything like that. And the reason is because the way time is defined on Earth, we use a local time convention as we travel across the world. As long as I'm going west, that'll work. Well, a similar thing can be done in space, and in fact, has been done since uh, ancient times. And so, perhaps God is using that that anisotropic time zone uh, model of zones out in space there, and so light can travel those enormous regions in no time at all. Light can be created with the star on the day on day four, and it can arrive on Earth on day four. You see, so it's not really an issue. But there are other creationists that have proposed that God used uh, perhaps time dilation, uh, gravitational time dilation, for example. Einstein tells us that time can flow at different rates in different environments. That's something that we've demonstrated with atomic clocks. We know it's true. So perhaps time flows more slowly on Earth than it does in the distant region of the universe because the Earth is in a gravitational uh, well that is near the center of a finite amount of galaxies. And therefore time would flow more slowly on Earth than it does out in the distant region of space. And so light can trickle in at its own slow rate, but on Earth only thousands of years elapses. That's an interesting possibility. There's also an offshoot of that called the Carmelian physics that would allow basically the same thing to happen, but it adds an extra dimension to uh, to general relativity. So these are interesting possibilities. But we should also keep in mind the possibility that God may have used a supernatural mechanism. After all, God is not bound by the laws of nature as we are. Especially during the creation week, when God was doing things in a supernatural rather than naturalistic uh, way. And so that's certainly a possibility as well. Maybe that we can't understand how an infinite God can do it. That doesn't mean that he can't do it. He's after all infinite. One answer that we would not recommend using is that God simply created the beams of light already on their way. And the reason we don't uh, think that that's a good answer is because we see things happen in space. We see stars explode, for example. And if, uh, if God just created the beam en route, then that means that the star that we saw explode never really happened. God just painted a picture of that explosion along this light beam, uh, when in fact the star never exploded, never even existed. And so I don't think that God is going to create pictures of fictional events out in space there. And if he did out in space, why not here on Earth? We really couldn't trust our senses if God created light beams that, that don't really come from their source. So I don't think that's the best explanation. And another thing I want to point out, though, is that the Big Bang, the alternative to biblical creation, also has a similar type of problem, a light travel time problem of its own. It's called the horizon problem. And basically it has to do with the cosmic microwave background that we see uh, streaming from the distant regions of the universe. We find that it's very uniform. And that shouldn't be, because in the Big Bang model, uh, it should have different temperatures in different places. Why is it so uniform? Obviously, light energy had to travel from the, the hotter regions to the cooler regions to, to equilibrate those temperatures. But there hasn't been enough time. Even in 13.7 billion years, there's not enough time for light to travel from one side of the physical universe to the other. And so that's a light travel time problem for the Big Bang. It seems to me that if the alternative biblical creation has the same type of problem as biblical creation, then you can't argue that distant starlight somehow disproves biblical creation in favor of the Big Bang. And after all, God is omniscient; He could have used a mechanism that we do know about, or he could have used a mechanism that we don't know about. But it's not a problem for an infinite God to get light from distant galaxies to Earth in thousands of years.
0: Has anybody ever done that? Left, flew out of one time zone, landed in another one, landed at the same time you left? Or even gained some time? Yeah? I mean, I know you didn't time travel, but it's just, I understood that what he was saying, but when he starts applying it to space-like events and time-like events, and when you read it, it's like, hey, okay, all right, Jason Lyle is that guy's name, and just ask me if you, uh, these are posted, so if you want the links to read more about it, you can, or if you want, oh, sorry. These guys are smart. Yeah, Humphreys and Lyle, and his, they, they have PhDs. They're scientists, they're, and they're published and everything. But uh, the reason I just threw that in there was uh, just kind of a random thing. People think that, I, I tell my students this all the time, you know, that uh, when they're getting smarter, their brain's actually not getting bigger. Well, they are because they're growing into adults. But your brain's not actually getting bigger. It is getting really clear. That's right. All right, Einstein's brain, normal weight. 3.5 pounds, wrinkled up like a prune. Smarter than smoothie. Okay, and then lastly on this uh, as astronomy stuff, or on the uh, distant starlight stuff, some creationists subscribe to a light speed decay theory. And that means that light is not the same speed now that it used to be. And if it's a exponential decay like that, the famous hockey stick, although... Sometimes it's on its side, sometimes it's standing up like that. You'll see that if we are down in this vicinity right in there, right in there, I, I don't know why I'm doing it, because that side over there, can't see it. Okay, yeah, yeah, I'm pointing at that. See how it's almost leveled off. And so for the last, what have they been able to measure light? It's a lot longer than I thought, 150 years or something like that, 100 and something years. I'm like, how could people back in the late 1700s be measuring the speed of light? But... Pretty clever people, I suppose. Um, but for the measurements we have on it, it hasn't changed a whole lot. So we're at the bottom of the hockey stick. But these guys would suggest, like, yeah, but if we're at exponential decay, look how fast it used to be over here. Really fast. Yeah, but changing the speed of light has a lot of implications. I don't think that particular theory, yeah, I used to think that too, but I don't know then they then they got stuff to exceed the speed of light, and I thought, hey, Einstein, I thought it was supposed to become infinite if that happens, but it didn't here we are, it didn't like engulf us. what happened I don't know. yeah, yeah, it, I'm sure there that's probably why some creationists don't like this is because there's other problems that it introduces, yeah, so, but you can look into it if you like, look into it some more. all right. Okay, here we go. Geology, paleontology. What I propose that we do is talk about this for about, maybe about half of this or or two thirds of this today. Finish this and do some biology ones in my last session on next Wednesday. And that'll be that. Okay? And then if you don't agree with me, I disfellowship myself from you forever. No. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) Love you all. So we're very, very grateful for Side. Okay. Very little sediment on the sea floor. What's that mean? We'll talk about it in just a sec uh we'll also I also want to talk about very little salt in the sea. The helium that's still in the radioactive rocks, the carbon fourteen in the fossils. I actually had kind of kind of a personal thing with that one. Uh, bent rock layers, DNA and ancient bacteria, the little Grand canyon that's the nickname obviously um Polystrate fossils, and that's one of my favorite ones right there. Soft tissues in fossils, or I mean, if you want to preview of stuff on that, look up Dino soft tissue tonight when you go home. Watch what kind of stuff you run into. I told you you see some shocking stuff. You're never going to see that in the textbook. Okay, here we go. Very little sediment on the seafloor. Here are all the different sources of the sediment that is accumulating in ocean, right? Has anybody ever seen a pond that got like virtually choked out with the the erosion that got in there? Or at least it was a lot shallower than it used to be? Okay. That's what these guys are suggesting should have happened to the ocean, but I don't know about fully choked out, but a lot more of it should be there. So, oh, and this also brought to mind, uh, it reminded me of in Job 38, 11, when uh, God was telling basically he was rebuking him, reprimanding him, and he was saying, where were you when I did this and this and this? And he said... uh, When I said, this far you may come and no further, he was talking about the ocean. When I told the sea, you may come this far and no further. Um, The sources of the erosion, where's the sediment coming from that's going into the ocean? Water and wind erosion gives 20 billion tons a year. Tectonic plate movement loses 1 billion tons. The the tectonic plates move not a whole lot. They may have moved more in the past, but... They don't move a whole lot, but it's getting rid of some of that sediment. So we've got a net of, what, 19 billion tons are being added to the ocean. Okay, after 3 billion years, they said, we would expect to see 250 times more sediment in the ocean than we see today. If it had really been doing this for 3 billion years. Some some folks have proposed, yeah, that the continents actually would have fully eroded multiple times by now. That the ocean would have eaten them right on down.
1: Yep. What I've heard about, you I'm sure know more about, um, the lunar landing huh? and space dust and what they expected on the lunar landing was a lot more sediment on the surface of the moon than what there actually was when they got there. Are you
0: familiar with that? Yeah. Yeah, they thought their uh, lander was going to sink in the, the sediment. They thought it was going to be so, so pop. And that is that because, I don't know if that's because of the age uh, discrepancy, though. I, I don't, yeah, I mean, it might have been. I mean, it kind of makes sense that if they thought that the universe and the moon had been there for 4.6 billion years collecting dust, it would have been a lot deeper. But I know that creationists have changed their mind about the rate of the moon dust. So maybe they somewhere back then had miscalculated the rate. At which it actually accumulates. That might not have been a, a you know a deep age thing. it could have could have contributed to it though. It reminded me. right? Yeah, yeah, I'd have to look into that further to see if that was actually directly related, to be honest with you. But yeah, that, I could see how that that miscalculation could be made if the rate was correctly established in the beginning. All right, then there was that was too much sed, uh, sediment should be two hundred fifty times what there is. All right, in this case, very little salt in the sea. I don't know about that. Have you ever accidentally caught a gulp of it, it tastes pretty salty. But here's where the sources are coming from. Erosion off the... Whoop, there's annual tons. Okay. Erosion off the land, 234 million tons. Let's put that up there. Atmosphere, 2 million tons. That was surprising to me because of the very fact that you can... What's it called again when you evaporate all the liquid out and all you've got left is the the solid, the, you know, the, the dust? Distill. Distill, thank you. I was going to say, they do it to moonshine. <laughs> but, but, yeah. <laughs> I couldn't think of the word. I'm sorry. I had to resort to unscrupulous means. Desperate measures. All right. <laughs> yeah, distill, they, uh That's what was surprising to me because I was like, wait, the fact that you can distill, you mean some of it actually comes up in the vapor of the You know that's lost off the liquid okay anyway to the atmosphere um from the atmosphere i guess into the ocean you're looking at two million tons and then um the sea spray is minus 60 million so it's actually losing a lot of salt to that and i thought that was
2: wild that's weird
0: i don't know Scientists, they try to be consistent when they do their experiments and stuff because then the peer review will just eat them alive if they, you know,
2: if on their methods. And I don't brain would be a lot worse than it is over there with,
0: uh, Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. There, to be honest, there sometimes are science things that are done to kind of cherry-pick or that kind of, um, well, they might just make honest mistakes, too, but... I just found that surprising. That's a lot of, that seems like a lot. Anyway, that gets taken away from the ocean. So let's take that off the total. Then you've got seepage, meaning the sediment not coming down off with salt like the erosion, but the, the liquid seeping out of the land into the ocean and carrying some salt. 96 million tons, let's put that up there. We're up to 272. All right, C4 exchange. Some of the salt is leaving the seafloor. Some of it's being absorbed by it. 115 million tons given to the ocean. Put that up. Total. And 62 million tons is taken away. New total. Spreading ridges, they say, contribute 11 million tons. For a total of a net of... Positive, 336 million tons a year. Ooh, dog has a lot of salt. Probably mighty tasty on some big eggs. Man, I write some crazy, goofy stuff on these things. I hope you guys will let it slide because, I don't know. <laughs> I'm working, working with slideshows. They shouldn't, shouldn't ever put that in my uh, possession. Okay. Very little salt in the sea. So what says you? So what says you? An old earth could get her done. Right? An old earth could do that. Well, if you start at zero salinity, the current level takes a mere 42 million years versus 3 billion years. Well, 42 million is a whole lot more than young earth creation people acknowledge. Am I right? Yeah, that is. Then I would speculate. I haven't seen creationist writings on this, to be honest with you, but I'm guessing they probably feel that the ocean started with A certain amount of salinity. A certain amount of salt already in it. Make sense? Okay. So there's some stuff from the ocean that we're looking at that shouldn't... uh, It should be a lot more severe if there's been three billion years. Okay. Helium and radioactive rocks. This is interesting. Helium behavior. Anybody seen this? Is that helium atom... More helium, shrink, a few more heliums, escape, shrink. And you know it darn well, I tugged that thing so tight, there's no way that helium could have leaked out of there. Wrong answer. I'm sorry to tell you, helium's a mighty small atom, and it can work its way actually through the material of the rubber. All right. Mylar too, but slower. You've seen mylar balloons. Eventually, they shrink down, but they last like a week, maybe a little longer. So anyway, the helium leaks out and it can leak out of rocks. <laughs> There's pretty much nothing you can hold helium permanently with that I know of. Okay, so in helium, what happens? You have a radioactive element, or I'm sorry, at least that's a zircon crystal basically. It's a igneous um, crystal, and meaning it was at one time magma. It was melted it, and then it solidified. So it's got uranium in this case in it, mighty big molecule. And it produces some helium, and helium escapes at a certain rate. 1.5 giga or billion years should show. Here's your uranium thorium level, and little pipsqueak, probably none really, helium level, or, or just barely, a, just trace amounts of what the uranium thorium is still producing. That's what we should have. Okay, after 1.5 billion years. But what do we really have when they look at them? Their findings about 6,000 years worth of helium leakage. I mean, presence, sorry. Yeah. It should have leaked out by now. It's slower out of a rock, obviously, than out of mylar and stuff, but it still will leak out. And they're saying there sure is a lot of helium still in these rocks. Why? Because they know the rate at which it's produced by the other substances, and they know the rate at which it leaks out, and it should be gone, long gone, if it's been one point five billion years. But if it comes out six thousand years, that really doesn't surprise us, and it's just like, oh, okay. Your
2: volcanoes um, a lot
0: of that. The zircon crystals.
2: Whatever you call
0: them. These these uh, are igneous rocks and stuff. Well, yeah, I mean, but I suppose any magma is going to do it. I don't know where they get a hold of these. The RATE project, I don't have a whole lot of time to explain everything about that, but if you're interested, look them up. Because what that stands for is that some creation scientists got together and they formed this team called RATE. And it stands for Radio Isotopes and the Age of the Earth. And they wanted to study these things and compare. And this is one of their findings. This is one of the things they found out. It's like, why so much helium? Well, I mean, they didn't—they weren't surprised because they already thought the Earth was young anyway. Okay, then I put a link in there if you guys want to go to their article. That, that page right there for that link has, oh, I don't know, like 10 different articles from that team and the research that they did. Okay. Next, carbon-14 in fossil. What's carbon-14? Well... Most carbon is found is known as carbon-12. Carbon fourteen is a little bit heavier and it's radioactive, it's unstable. The nucleus it falls up, you know, flings particles out so that it can stabilize, it becomes nitrogen-14. Um, I'll get to him in a second. Okay, carbon fourteen have been found in fossils, coal, diamonds. So what? You just said that it takes billions of years for the uranium thorium. Well, yeah. Oh, and it doesn't leak out. Unlike helium, I shouldn't 100% say that, by the way, because that assumes a closed system. But anyway, um, what they mostly look at on carbon-14 is how much of it has decayed, how much of it has broken down into nitrogen-14. So you got your neutrons and protons. Carbon-14. Red's proton. Blue is neutron. And... Fling! There it goes. It flung out a subatomic particle of an anti-electron neutrino, whatever it is, and it basically turned a um, neutron into a proton. Proton. The number of protons is what determines what the substance is. It determines what the element is. And so it actually changed from carbon-14 to nitrogen-14. Okay, and that's and what they do is measure how much of that stuff they think has decayed. The half-life of carbon-14, there's the problem. It's only 5,730 years. That is not going to be found at all in something that is 250 million years old, 32 to 350 million years old, or 1 to 3 billion years old. In fact, I think at the, the absolute high end, people think you can, that this is even useful for, and it loses significant accuracy after like 50,000 years, is maybe 99,000 years. Max decay time. Oh, okay. I looked up a resource recently. It said uh, the max decay time would be between thirty-five and fifty thousand years. Why then is it still in those things that are supposedly one point something billion years old? Why is it in there? Well, seculars say contamination. You clumsy oafs! Don't you put any gloves on, or do you just let the your your greasy fingers get all over everything and deposit carbon fourteen? Well, okay, they don't go that far, but they do. Try to declare contamination. The problem is, some of these experiments have been done with great caution to avoid contamination. So they know it didn't come from contamination. There was original carbon 14 still in these things. Yes, has carbon 14? Yes, they found it in that. Yes, they, oh yeah, you betcha, they found it in diamonds. Okay, contamination. They've been careful to avoid that, but they still show uh, C-14. Anybody know what that is? You guys recognize that picture? Yep. Go on. Whoa, whoa, I heard it. I don't know who said it. Fluorescent. Is it fluorescent or fluorescent?
2: Fluorescent.
0: Florissant. Fossil beds. Yeah, we took a trip up there. Uh, it's been quite a while ago now. But I asked the ranger about this. I said, "Have these uh, have these stumps been tested for carbon-14? What was his reply? There's me. Any, any of these trunks have been tested for carbon 40? Some of them are like 12 feet thick too and they're petrified, horrified and mortified by me. Park Ranger says, no need. Uh, they're way too old. I put the 35 million years in there because a, a, another part of the discussion earlier and I don't know if it was him that said it actually. He didn't say it in that reply but that's how old they claim these Trump these stumps are, so they don't even bother testing for them. That's what I mean by building our thinking on what the assumption. There's
1: well, you no know, original part of that tree left. It's all been replaced in the fossilization process.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: so it'd be impossible to ever to test. It.
0: Well, they do it with diamonds. <laughs> They can, test, they can test diamonds with an accelerated mass spectrometer, I guess, and they can... I'm not sure how they get the sample.
1: The the What's that? does not.
0: That's a pretty good argument. Does the mineralization process of turning it into a fossil or petrifying it remove carbon-14? Would it remove it? And where does it go? I don't know. The other
1: su- substance. There's nothing left of the tree. All the cells have been replaced
2: with molds basically
0: uh, whatever it is is. right yeah i just don't know if that gets rid of the carbon 14 that was in the original living tree, though, because just like they can find it in diamonds that's not alive anymore you wouldn't say it is it's pure carbon so that when that becomes a pure mineral stump does it shed carbon 14 from that i don't know and or does it introduce it i don't know how it would but I guess somebody could pursue that line of thinking and with their experiments and stuff and try to figure it out. But I know it's mighty surprising to people otherwise, to secular scientists, or they wouldn't say contamination. Because they know it shouldn't be there. They know it shouldn't be there. OK, bent rock layers. That's a pretty good uh, point you brought up, though, Keith. Bent rock layers, so what? Rocks get bent all the time, do they not? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> not by
1: erosion.
0: Nope, it's not by erosion. Oh, that
1: water
0: what do we think is doing that? What's causing the bend in the rocks? God's creation is amazing.
2: Bent before
0: it oh, oh, nice call. I got to give it to you. Got to give it to you. Yeah, she said it got bent before it was a rock. Yeah, yeah. So if they... If it was true sedimentary layers over millions of years and they were completely solidified and then all that pressure and everything had happened to fold it, it would fracture it. It would crack it. you see big old cracks running up there like you see in concrete and stuff when the tree roots busted up. That's what you would see. And they're not. They're not cracked. So that had to have happened. At least the only thing we could think of is when it was soft. Before it had become solid like a global flood type of event. There's another one. uh, I think they're Grand Canyon samples specimens, sorry. But they would have been uh, split and fractured by the great geological forces. Soft ones don't do that. Uh, The whole Grand Canyon sedimentary sequence is severely bent or folded in various places. Not the entire thing, obviously. But various places have this phenomenon right here. Excuse me, conclusion? It's simply not millions of years of sediment, sediment. And we'll go over that in just a minute. Well, then how would we get so many thousands of layers there then? Michael, Marty Pence? Secular explanation, heat and pressure bent and folded the layers after they solidified. It's true, with enough heat and pressure, the rock will re-soften and become what they call metamorphic rock. The problem is, it's still sedimentary rock. It doesn't have marble or quartzite or whatever the other metamorphics are. It's still sedimentary. And so that really can't be the explanation as far as we can tell. Sedimentary rock, they remain. Okay, let's cover this one and then we'll consider that the last one for the evening. DNA in ancient bacteria. This is a trip. <laughs> They got something called the Lazarus bacteria. I don't know if you guys ever saw it on the news or anything, but two, supposedly so-called 250 million year old bacteria. Now, I know God's amazing. And we talked about how he put the genome in there that has all this adaptability and everything like that. But 250 million years as a spore, as, you know, a inactive spore, I think that was a sample. They got it out of salt, out of salt crystal, I believe this ancient bacteria. Okay, They claim to have resurrected bacteria named Lazarus bacteria, discovered in a salt crystal conventionally dated at 250 million years old. They were shocked that the bacteria's DNA was very similar to modern bacterial DNA. If modern bacteria were the result of 250 million years of evolution, its DNA should be very different from the Lazarus bacteria uh, based on known mutation rates. In addition, the scientists were surprised to find that the DNA was still intact after, after the supposed 250 million years. DNA normally breaks down quickly. It's one of the most fragile molecules there is. It's not collagen. It's not like the bone that's in connective tissue or the, the protein that's in bone and connective tissue and stuff that lasts in mummies and from Egypt and stuff like that. No, no, no. Very fragile. We're not going to have Jurassic Park. I'm sorry to disappoint you. It's not going to happen. No. Well, I don't know. they keep tampering with CRISPR and everything maybe. Um, in addition, oh, they were surprised to find the DNA intact, normally breaks down quickly, even in ideal conditions, dry, frozen conditions. Even evolutionists agree that DNA in bacterial spores, a dormant state, should not last more than a million years. Their quandary is quite substantial. That's
1: an the- interesting secularist named it the Lazarus Yeah. Actually, yeah <laughs>
0: Oh, well, hey, wait till we talk about biology. They also have something called mitochondrial Eve. Whoops. Yeah, that's a good point, though, Fred. You know, they named it Lazarus. However, the discovery of Lazarus' bacteria is not shocking or surprising when we based our expectations on the Bible. This was written by a creationist, obviously. Uh, for instance, Noah's flood likely deposited the salt beds that were home to the bacteria. If the Lazarus' bacteria are only 44,000-something years old um, since the flood their DNA is more likely to be intact and similar to modern bacteria. Okay, so to sum it up, what's the problems with finding DNA in ancient, as in 250 million year old, supposedly, bacteria? Okay, I was goofing around again, sorry. They're better than fine, they're not aging. (laughs) Anybody seen that movie, Weird Science? Take a look at it, it's pretty funny. That. This lady right here, she has like these magical powers. She put that Grammy and Grampy there in the closet in a catatonic state. And so when, her, when their grandson found out, she's like, he's like, do you think they're okay being catatonic in a closet? And she said, they're fine. They're better than fine. They're not even aging. Well, that's this bacteria here. It was a spore, right? So it's not metabolically active. It's in suspended animation. But I don't care if it's dead or suspended. is isn't going to stay together. to
2: those
1: scientists. Yeah. Where they found that salt crystal. Uh huh. Where was it
2: embedded in whatever and how old is that supposed to be? In
0: that uh, right. Well, they, they said that they said, uh, they based on them. traditional um, concepts, I guess they think that it's 250 million year old salt crystals. How did they measure that time? I'm not sure. Can DNA
1: only old
0: It probably was related to where they found it. That they think, oh, hey, these rock layers are 250 million years old, and that's where we found that salt crystal. So that's all. Okay, that
1: makes perfect sense. <laughs> well,
0: I'll be honest. This does kind of surprise me as a young Earth guy. It's like you find you're finding DNA that's still that's pretty amazing, intact DNA, very fragile molecule, unmutated. There's the other problem. and anybody catch that? You're telling me that in 250 million years, this Lazarus bacteria, when you got it reactivated, this DNA looks just like the modern version of that bacteria. So in 250 million years, when dinosaurs made it all the way to primates, supposedly, in the evolutionary timescale, this thing did nothing. It didn't change one bit. Now, I know they may argue there's differing mutational rates, but... You know how fast bacteria generate? How many generation times there are? Opportunities for mutations? Pretty bloody fast. Uh, uh, one bacteria can go from one to a billion sometimes in 12 hours. So, they regenerate awful fast. Anyway, yeah, that's that's kind of ridiculous to suggest that it has exactly the same DNA. No evolution happened in it at all. Whoops. All right. Say What? Oh, here you go. If you want a couple cartoons before we go. I must keep on evolving. And then there's the guy. Present day, he's working on a computer. That's not the same uh, time frame. That says 380 million years ago. We were just talking about 250 million years ago. But it's an awful lot of supposed evolution. But then you got this uh, horseshoe crab right here that that, uh, didn't change at all. I think I'm already perfect. 445 million later, still perfect. Pokemons also apparently refuse to evolve. Some of them. I don't know. Never tried to evolve one. And then there's this one. The guy's still setting up in the tree with a monkey, eating a banana. Doesn't want to progress. It says he refuses to evolve. He says he likes things as they are. (laughs) Fiction. Yeah. Okay. All right, wait. Before you go, though. I want to give you, uh, uh, yeah, we'll talk about that later. Check this out. No, 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 no. I should have given myself a link to jump right to the slide. Nope, nope, no, nope, no. Nope. It's more geology stuff. Is coming. Ha! Here we go. Take a look at that. <laughs> I'm not going to tell you what it is. I'm not going to tell you what it's from. But if you've had a traditional education like me, it's going to be surprising. All right? So with that, we'll consider ourselves dismissed and I hope to see you next week so you can find out what that is. Don't give it away. Hey, I'm Eddie White,
1: the Senior Minister for the Eastside Church of Christ. Sure want to thank you for joining us today on our podcast. I hope today's message was indeed a blessing to you. I'd like to invite you to browse our website at eastsidesprings.com to get more information or to contact us.
2: And as always, we indeed welcome you to join us for our worship service in Colorado Springs as we seek to live out Jesus' mission of making disciples
0: of all nations."